0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Vanessa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Ulrike Krauss about her book, Difficult Life in a Refugee Camp, Gender, Violence, and Coping in Uganda, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Ulrike, welcome
1: to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Thank you. Yes. Uh, I'm junior professor of forced migration and refugee studies at Osnabrück University. And my research broadly revolves around the nexus of conflict, displacement and peace, gender and gender-based violence, how it's connected in the in the different phases uh, of displacements uh, the global refugee regime and humanitarian system, including policies, norms, and practices. And of course, also agency of refugees and their their resilience. Uh, Regionally, I focus on uh, global developments as well as those in Africa. And doing that research, of course, I also think much about knowledge production and research ethics and how we actually carry out research and believe to create something that we define as knowledge. Thank you. So.
0: So let's begin uh, with how this book came about. Uh, how did you come to write this book, Difficult Life in a Refugee Camp?
1: This is actually my second book. It, uh, it's part of my postdoc project. The project is entitled Gender Relations in Confined Spaces, Conditions, Scope, and Forms of Sexual Violence Against Women in Refugee Camps, which was led by Professor Susanna baclert at the Center for Conflict Studies at Marburg University. The project, at its core, um, had women as potential victims of violence um, uh, at the heart, basically. Um, And we wanted to see why the violence takes place, how often or to what extent, as well as in which forms. Um, And that created several puzzles for me. First of all, the title itself is already critical because women as victims has a tendency of victimizing only women and even unconsciously or indirectly framing men as perpetrators, potentially even natural perpetrators. Uh, and this is this is an issue because we know from the research that gender-based violence can, of course, also affect men. Yet at the time of research, and this is one great gap in the book as well, uh, at the time of research, the government of Uganda, where we carried out research, um, enacted the anti-homosexuality bill, um, rape against men was often and still is often interpreted as um, a, ho- a homosexual act. And so I could not ensure that potential rape, male rape, rape victims would be safe, so we had to withdraw from um, a strategic approach to our research with men. And that also applies to LGBTQIA people. So the first puzzle really is still about gender-based violence, not limited to women, but focused on women. The second puzzle um, in the the project, as well as in the book, is how does that relate to to, to conflict? Violence in... um, refugee camps are not limited to camps, but in what ways is it connected to the time before? The third puzzle that came up also um, was core in the project but became even stronger in the course of the research is gender relations. In research, there are a number of studies which mention that gender relations change. But how? Why? To what extent? This is something that, um, that I focused on in the research. And finally, the fourth puzzle that that I was extremely interested in from not only a research perspective, but also a personal one, is how do people cope with the massive violence, with the restrictions, with the uncertainties on so many different levels? How do people deal with it and essentially practice their agency? So I'm looking forward to picking apart
0: uh, the book. Uh, but do you mind providing listeners with some contextual information about refugees in Uganda in general and, and the particular camp that you focus on in this book?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, Uganda, uh, f- for those who... who... I have not been to Uganda or don't know the map too well. Uganda is a relatively small country in East Africa, um, neighboring um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Kenya, as well as uh, in the southwest, Burundi, and Rwanda, and of course in the south, the uh, Victoria League. R- um, Uganda has a long history of uh, displacement, within the country as well as people seeking asylum and safety there Um, and at the moment it is one of the countries that with the largest um, refugee population, about 1.5 million refugees are in this small country. But already um, at the time when Uganda became independent from the colonial power of the UK. people were fleeing for fleeing to the country and seeking safety there and ever since then Uganda used a camp system that is actually entitled settlements so we have a number of uh, camps that are actually called refugee um, for instance um, rhino camp settlement And that settlement idea is strongly connected to the political approach that uh, the government of Uganda takes. It also has a longer historical tradition uh, dating back to colonial times. But but, uh, since independence, it was strongly related to a development orientation. Humanitarian refugee protections from, from, from the start a humanitarian, hence an emergency approach. It's about uh, providing, registering people, providing food and non-food items, medical care, and so on, um, but not a, an approach that is sustainable and long-term. And Uganda connected it uh, from early on, and that's where the, the set this idea of settlement comes in. Refugees receive access to uh, a plot of land for agriculture to grow their own food, And so the settlements are quite big. For example, Chakatu refugee settlement, as it's called, where I carried out research, is about 84 square kilometers large. And that is a relatively small camp in Uganda. Um, It was established for um, about 17,000 refugees, but at the time of research, more than 20,000, far more than 20,000 people lived there. And um, at the moment, about 120,000 people live there. Um, the, I could go on and on about the development orientation, which I'm not going to do. I actually explored that in my PhD. Um, I do not use the word settlement in my book because I think it is misleading. Despite the settlement or the settlement term, um, gives the idea that refugees choose to live there are among their peers, but they're really forced, even by law in Uganda, to live in these des- for them designated spaces. It is a strongly hierarchical place that is run by humanitarian agencies and not by the people. They don't have a choice or much of a choice, and they are strongly limited by the local restrictions. And um, so, I continue to use the word camp instead of settlement in the book.
0: Thank you for that. Um, So before we get into the the empirics, I wanted to ask you how you went about doing the research for this book. Uh, You know, what, what types of data collection did you engage in?
1: For the research, we used a qualitative, mainly qualitative, multi-method approach. And I'm saying we because I had the great privilege to work with Christine Nemosema and Karuhanja, um, uh, who both are from Uganda, as well as 12 refugees as peer researchers. Christine is a clinical psychologist, and Pearl is a political scientist with a focus on gender and um, the refugees. With uh, whom I also worked with, um, were either enrolled in um, university's degrees or had already finished them, mainly focusing on social work. So that fit very well, and together uh, or through that teamwork uh, in Uganda, we were able to reconceptualize and adjust some of the research approaches um, and research questions that we already identified prior to traveling, or for me, prior to traveling to Uganda and um, collecting the data. So the work, the cooperation was uh, extremely valuable for the research. Um, In detail, we used uh, a number of different methods to not purely collect responses or to collect information, but really to get insights into the experience, the lived experiences of the people, how they understand, conceptualize um, issues and how they practice their agency. With refugees, uh, we use 65 so-called Arabic dialogues. These are a form of unstructured interviews, but really actually conversations like you and I are doing at the moment. If we don't have We don't have a list of prepared, concrete questions that we ask, but really have the conversation go and also give the people um, the opportunity to raise questions they find important that may not be central to the research project, but are key to them. Uh, among these 65 people, there were 42 women and 23 men. Most of them, uh, in general, most of the people that we spoke with were from the Democratic Republic of Congo. In addition to that, we used uh, seven focus group discussions with 35 participants, 16 um, of them were women, 19 were men. Um, Here, I ended up really focusing on what was said, although, of course, focus group discussions give us the opportunity to also explore power dynamics in groups. However, we, we, we look at a multicultural and multinational context in Uganda, although I have, or in Chaka too uh, especially, uh, and while I have lived three years in Uganda in the past, uh, prior to the research, um, it would more be a creative interpretation of what was going on in the discussion than than proper research. So I focused on what was discussed and what the key messages were. To also explore positions of young people, we use journal writings as a way of asking open questions uh, in a child-sensitive approach, so they could respond to as much as they wanted to or as little as they wanted to and not respond to any questions. We uh, we spoke or we worked, sorry, uh, with uh, 37 people here. Uh, they were between 15 and 19 years and um most of them were, no, 18 were young women and 19 young men. We also carried out two surveys with an overall of 751 people. <laughs> one was focused on uh, gender-based violence and one on the overall condition and aid, structure, aid structures in the camp. We used um, anonymous written multiple choice questions here. Um, 53% were women and 47 were men. Finally, um, since, although the focus was, of course, on the people who reside in the camp, um, I can't explore a camp without also working with the humanitarian and political actors, hence the, the aid actors there. And f- uh, to interview them, we used structured and semi-structured interviews. Um, all of the employees of aid agencies were Ugandan, 14 were women and 14 were men. Doing that research uh, in in the refugee camp went hand-in-hand hand with ethical issues as well as questions. I'm a white, Western-trained researcher. Um, who for this particular project went to Uganda for three months to uh, collect data. I just mentioned, yes, I lived in the country for three years and worked with refugees in the past, but this does not um, say that I know everything or can do everything right. So in the team also with my former uh, supervisor, Susanna, we thought much about how we can design the research in a way that is most ethical. But also tackle the strong hierarchies and uh, power dynamics that are involved in our research. So one thing that led our research um, and also guided our ideas about how we can actually carry out the research is how can we do no harm. Do no harm is mentioned so often in so many publications as the golden rule, but that was simply not enough for us because... The golden rule can be broken without anyone being taken to justice. And what we did is um, carrying out a do-no-harm analysis prior to, during, as well as after the research, um, following a concept by Anderson, which was from the 90s. She conceptualized it actually for development projects to um, to avoid conflict, uh, conflictive situations and to promote um, connecting um, situations, basically. Um, during the research, we carried out the do-no-harm analysis as a team with Christine and Pearl, as well as the twelve refugees, which was extremely helpful to better understand the local conditions. In addition, how can we? Another question that um, that worked my mind, our minds a lot is how can we ensure informed consent and voluntary participation? People who do not work in research how can i explain what i do with the data how i work with the data what it means to analyze data what data actually is so here to 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 use uh, a sensitive approach to informed consent and uh, voluntary participation we drew on uh, the relational approach uh, that McKenzie um, outlined in their, I think it was 2007 article about ethical relations and that helped us a lot to continuously discuss informed consent rather than once getting the signature on a standardised paper. Um, ethical uh, there, there are a whole lot more ethical questions that guided our research but i'll stop here and only mention that ethical questions are still at the at the core for me also when I wrote the book what terms do i use how do i how do i approach people how do i frame my role in the research as well as in the team um, how do I speak about the people's experiences do I use the term refugee do I use the term uh, victim and so on and so forth. This is something that continues to, to work my mind in publications that I'm working on now in the book. And uh, I think we need much more discussion about ethical approaches to knowledge production than we have, especially in political science. I'm
0: really glad you brought that up because I, I genuinely appreciated the extended uh, discussion of ethical considerations that you have um, up front in the book, uh, which is not something that we often see Uh, in many refugee studies uh, works, but which perhaps we should be seeing more of, right? Um, So diving into the empirics, uh, you begin with a description of gender-based violence in the camp. You make an argument that patterns of violence that we see during encampment are linked with violence during the conflict uh, in refugees' home country, and also linked with violence during the journeys that refugees made to escape it. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about this? Uh, you call it a continuum of violence at one point in the book.
1: Exactly. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So, as I mentioned, the project started out with uh, sexual violence against women in refugee camps, and um, well. We link conflict and displacement from the from the start of the project. It was really not the connection of um, of these different uh, different phases, let me call it. Um, but the, the more I spoke with people. The more often they connected the violence they experienced in the camp with the ones that they experienced during a conflict, how such experiences of violence contributed to their displacement, how they continued to um, experience uh, different forms of gender-based violence during their flight, during the process of their flight, uh, after reaching the camp, and so on and so forth. So it became a big here I use the word puzzle again, but really the puzzle. And putting these pieces together showed that um, although in peace and conflict studies we know that leaving conflict does not mean an end of violence, here is um, the evidence how violence continues and is connected um, with each other through different, uh, very specific factors. So um, we see Or how I uh, framed it is a continuum of violence, which is not merely a continuation of violence, but really a connection of the violence, the gender-based violence that takes place in the conflict, during flight, as well as in the camp. In the camp, the most uh, prevalent forms of violence were um, sexual violence, in a way of rape, um, also defilement of younger uh, people, and threats of rape. Uh, then structural violence and cultural violence uh, of denial of resources denial uh, whether be it um, agricultural um, resources or access to education um, but also militarized forms of violence which especially affected men so uh, and here is the point of not only being uh, not only women being potential victims of violence but also men. Uh, the main perpetrators of such violence in the camp were actually acquaintances. These could be husbands, so intimate partner violence, um, fathers or other acquaintances like people from the neighborhood. Uh, During flight and conflict, these victim-perpetrator structures changed uh, slightly. Also, the forms uh, changed slightly, but it was still connected. During conflict, the main form of violence that occurred Uh, were sexual violence, and that was particularly perpetrated by members of conflict parties, and that violence was mainly perpetrated to spread fear. It was, hence, mainly uh, women as victims and men as perpetrators. However, um, men were also confronted with um, forced recruitment to conflict parties because they were men. Also, women were... uh, Confronted with uh, being uh, forcibly recruited as bushwives, but that was rarely spoken about uh, by the people um, during flight. The main these main forms of violence of uh, sexual violence um, and forced recruitment continued during flight, but here it was not only the conflict parties who committed the violence, but also other uh, fleeing people, especially sexual violence. The connecting parts here in this big puzzle is, first of all, lack of law enforcement. The violence can only take place because there is a pure lack of law enforcement, even in the camp. I had I spoke uh, with a number of people who mentioned that they had seen perpetrators who, um, who perpetrated the violence during conflict or during displacement in the camp and authorities insufficiently reacted to it. The second uh, area... Is uh, di- gender dynamics and gender gender power uh, imbalances uh, in a way of who is supposed to have the say and who's supposed to be subordinate and uh, what kind of violence can take place and can be done? So there are a number of, of different areas that bring these different forms of violence together. In the past, I spoke about a uh, tendency to privatization of violence in the camp because it moves from public spaces for violence to be seen in conflicts to private spaces uh, in camps. And I think it is important to go beyond um, the focus on one side, on either conflict or displacement, in order to see how these different phenomena are linked
0: now, you're very much uh, interested in the role of humanitarian agencies uh, here, and you show that humanitarian agencies work to respond to gender-based violence, but that their efforts may in some ways also contribute to that violence. Can
1: you tell us about that? Yes. <clears throat> yes, thank you. Um, the the chapter about humanitarian aid um, puzzled me for quite a while because... Um, it, it, there was there were so many issues um, that I didn't quite know where to start. Honestly, so um, I f- focused on three different diff- different aspects in the chapter. The first one is really a general approach to uh, how decision-making structures and power structures take place. Um, The second one is about um, responding to gender-based violence. And this is the questions you are going to. I think we need to look at the broader uh, area too in order to understand the second one. People are generally displaced people, refugees, are generally treated as protection objects um, and not really have a say in how the camps are run, how aid is provided, how uh, policies are implemented. I mean, it is changing at the moment. We do see a lot of developments, but at the time of research, um, they were merely... The beneficiaries, the target groups, the objects, and that becomes even clearer when we look at when we look at gender-based violence. Um, how how aid agencies respond to it? Um, let's they have a focus on women, um, protecting women, but entirely disregard men, and by that um, influence gender relations. And on the one hand. Con- not only prevent violence, but also contribute to violence. So by through the way of them uh, trying to protect women, they unconsciously um, and certainly unintendedly contribute to the prevalence of violence that we see in so many spaces and places. The second way in which... Um, the camp condition contributes to violence is really the camp condition itself. It's such a large space with insufficient law enforcement. There was one police officer and one agency um, for 20,000 people in the camp that was located in the base camp. Um, And in the other uh, 84 square kilometers, there was no one. Um, The receiving access to support uh, when you were further away from the base camp it was very difficult so the entire landscape of the camp contributed to the continuation and the prevalence of violence um, let's for instance look at or look at the example of younger children going to schools if they have a long walk to school they have a long walk that is unprotected to the school Thirdly, there are, of course, of course, also examples in which aid workers actually perpetrated violence, misused their power, misused pressure, especially towards younger women and girls, um, to engage in sexual favors to receive aid. These issues were carefully spoken about by refugees, but a problem they continue to mention is where should they go? Even if they went to report it, aren't they friends, uh, the people who per- perpetrated the violence aren't they potentially friends uh, with those who received the reports? So this is a great issue that uh, we heard about in the past, also in the news, happening elsewhere, happening in other humanitarian crises, but especially in these refugee camps that exist for decades and decades, like Chaka. Chaka, ex- Chaka 2 was established in 1984. I believe I forgot to mention that earlier. Um and I spoke with people who lived a lifetime in a camp. Two men uh, fled uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1965 and 1968. This is a lifetime in a camp, a lifetime governed by humanitarian agencies. And if they don't find protection, of course, um, they, it, it's, it continues to be a difficult life.
0: You know, one of the things that I want to mention uh, for listeners is that, it, and it may not come across as clearly uh, sort of in, in the conversation that we're having right now, is that um, in the book, you um, are very careful to use the exact words uh, that uh, refugees themselves used in describing their conditions to you. And that, I think, makes many of these... Um, many of these patterns that you're describing even more sort of vivid uh, and even more heart-wrenching, uh, to be honest. Um, so, you know, building on to the uh, a theme that you've mentioned now a couple of times, uh, the theme of sort of gender roles, um, based on your research, what changes did you observe in gender roles and relations in the camp?
1: Thank you. Um, generally speaking, On a very, very basic level, the gender roles and relations that I found in the camp were um, patriarchal, in a way of men being believed to be decision makers um, and the powerful actors as opposed to women and younger people who are supposed to to follow men's role. In order to further explore that, I drew on uh, Hearn's approach to the hegemony of men, Um, And while the hegemony of man may seem to be from the title uh, of the concept of the theory and approach that focuses solely on man, this is not the case. Hearn conceptualizes it in a way of how different social actors, especially men, but others too, um, understand the roles as well as... um, practice them through social practices and how this is intertwined in a gender system. And to understand, especially also the changes I had to look into how conditions were or how uh, the people I worked with and I spoke with it's, uh, experiences and memorized or uh, remembered the, um, the situation prior to flight. I'm going to focus on uh, the situation in the camp now though. Um, in the in the camp, there was a lot of discussion about men being the leaders. However, men hardly being able to fulfill the, these roles because of the restrictions, because of the limitations, because of the lack of livelihoods, because of the uncertainties for the future, because they couldn't provide for their families as they would hope for, uh, as they also worked for. Um, and... Part of these issues are because of the humanitarian restrictions and the humanitarian aid that is provided to them. Um, However, actually, not however. Women partly and strong, partly as well as strongly agreed with it. Um, Strongly agreed with uh, the insufficient livelihoods and partly because of uh, the lack that men could contribute. to the families. A great, great and very interesting part uh, in the data was how women described their roles when it was entirely disconnected to gender roles and gender relations. Well, with regard to gender relations, they also described women as the ones who have to listen to men, have to follow men's role. But once it is Beyond gender relations, they described the numerous, various roles they had and they fulfilled, how they worked, um, gained uh, independence through economic practices, um, fought for having a voice, involved themselves in decision-making structures, also dem- democratic-like structures in the camp with different voting, had uh, were were or became representatives of several groups, And so on. That was extremely interesting how this tension um, arose and how they explained it. Another very interesting part is speaking with youth or younger people about gender relations. While they describe their gender relations among each other as entirely equal, with regard to adults, they describe the hierarchies of men being the the leader and women having to submit to men's leadership. The third very interesting part here is um, the role of aid workers. While aid workers tried to promote gender equality also through the humanitarian projects, they figuratively became part of gender relations due to the power they had to make decisions in the camp to provide support or not provide support, to to, um, decide who receives access to certain projects and who doesn't. So while trying to promote gender equality, They are part of the gender relations, although they may not want to or may not even be aware how much they are part of it. And thirdly, while they themselves strongly believing in patriarchal um, uh, conditions and them believing that the man should make the decisions. One example here is on um, World Women's Day. Um, i was uh, in Chaka too, and the they carried out eight agencies carried out a conference for women to not only celebrate women but to also further their education and the title was change begins at home and interestingly one part of this conference was to educating women how they have to satisfy their husbands also sexually and i was i was intrigued and frustrated on so many different levels of how, what an interesting tension arises here of trying to promote gender equality, being part of gender relations, and at the same time, maintaining these structures. So yeah, a big puzzle.
0: Just remarkable. Um, So the the final piece of the empirical uh, puzzle is about coping strategies. So what strategies did refugees use to cope with uh, these various circumstances that you've described,
1: the, the the chapter about coping strategies. In the chapter about coping strategies, I wanted to not only reflect uh, on the big uh, the big strategies and the big practices people use, or that I may define as such, but really the everyday practices, starting with conflict and displacement itself. Oftentimes, when uh, even people in research, but also journalists, media, politicians, speak about conflict and displacement, it almost sounds like a passive reflex, in a way of, hey, there's violence, people automatically flee, but this is not the case flight is a conscious decision, one that people might take um, early on to protect their families. This was the case, especially the case for younger um, uh, or not, not for younger people, but for people with younger children um, that they, if they were stood together as soon as the violence came closer, they decided to move um, and leave the site. While others, especially young men who um, feared Forced recruitment to conflict parties, they fled, they decided to flee by themselves without even uh, letting their families know in order to protect their families and uh, in order to protect themselves. Um, so in this chapter, I started off with these discussions about um, a gender-sensitive perspective of displacement and people, people's decisions to flee and also not to flee, to wait. For example, um, a number of women shared experience of um, their husbands being taken or their fathers being taken uh, by conflict parties, and they waited as long as they somehow could trying to protect their children uh, from the conflict, um, practicing to hide or having to hide uh, if soldiers came um, so, so the level of violence was uh, was tremendous, but it's still an active decision that the people take in order to uh, in order to weigh up when to flee or not to flee, um, and I think we need to keep that in mind. Generally, in order to to explore coping and practicing agency, I drew on Listers' approach uh, to agency, which is a feminist approach which she conceptualized uh, uh, focusing on poverty. She outlines four ways through which we see how people practice agency. That is getting by, getting out, getting organized, and getting back at. And these are practices I also found in um, how people uh, cope with uh, the difficult conditions in the camp. And here I'm not only speaking about violence as such but also the limited livelihoods access to education access to or uncertain future access to aid and so on and so forth um, and I found not only individual practices but especially also collective uh, practices through which people cope with um, experiences in a way of speaking together but also silence when to be silent when to speak out um, were consciously taken decisions to protect themselves but also to to move on to handle experiences in the camp uh, the people used a variety of um, economic uh, practices whether being uh, developed whether working on the field and doing aquaculture developing small businesses um, basically even developing a, um, an economic hub and in research there is a very interesting yet extremely critical hype about entrepreneurship of refugees, and this is what I discuss critically in this chapter too. Entrepreneurship ref, refugees are described as entrepreneurs and how creatively they um, they cope with the restrictions and the difficulties of basically having nothing. And I find that discussion extremely limited and extremely problematic because sexual uh, violence and prostitution sex for favor would that be part of these uh entrepreneurships or, or entrepreneurial um, practices i don't think so but this is part of what people have to do to get on and um, Although very difficult, yes, I do think they also practice agency through these uh, through these strategies. <clears throat> we just need to be careful of how things are phrased and what we see, what we discuss, and what we don't discuss. And um, a, a way of uh, getting out as well as uh, getting by is legal conscious people claiming their rights, but also sometimes hiding. Uh, certain aspects, being very aware of their rights and maneuvering the difficulties by, um, for instance, hiding their nationality and, um, but consciously hiding their nationality and um, uh, representing themselves as a different nationality. Um, that their um, third, a third area is hope and not only in a religious way, but also hope for a future. Um, Hope was portrayed as both a coping strategy as such, as well as um, a vehicle for other uh, coping strategies. For people to be able to move on, to stay hopeful, to handle what I frame in the book as multidimensional uncertainties for the future, for how to deal with the current restrictions, um, not knowing when they may have to return to a place of origin, which we may... Um, we may describe as home in research but really is not home if they've never lived there and been born in a camp so hope was central and uh, in German we have a saying that hope moves mountains um, I'm not sure if it makes sense in English but this is really what the, what the narratives reflected um, showing how important their hope was for a better future but also their religious hope, practicing this hope together and believing that something better will come. Perhaps not even for them, but for their children, but that hope was extremely powerful. Thank
0: you for that. Now, towards the end of the book, uh, you reflect on the theme of time and space, which is a theme that's kind of woven throughout the entire book. Can I ask you to speak uh, on that a little bit? Thank you
1: yes time time was an issue that r- runs through all chapters and um, after I finished the first um, the first draft of the book, I thought of multiple ways and approaches through which I can theorize time and have it more con- or more, more actively run through the book but I couldn't because in each chapter I discuss time from different perspectives. For instance, in the chapter about violence uh, during conflict, flight, and encampment, it is really an approach to different phases um, and and also times of experiencing violence uh, for people and um, theoretically connecting conflict and displacement and here conflict studies and forced migration studies. In uh, the second chapter uh, about humanitarian work, here, the third one, um, about humanitarian aid and the camp landscape. It's really about protracted refugee situation and the powerful um, positions of humanitarian agencies over such a long time and how um, this concept of protractedness is used in a way of As I mentioned early on, um, having a development oriented approach to refugee protection, not only uh, humanitarian aid. Then the third one, uh, looking at um, gender relations, how gender relations change. And here I especially also discuss how people uh, remember situations and gender relations at home. And that concept of remembering. is, is yet a different approach to time, um, and thirdly, um, in the uh, uh, and lastly, sorry, uh, in the last chapter, I look at the future and the multi-dimensional uncertainties. And well, I believe time is an extremely important uh, category. I was unable to have this one have it. Um, captured in this one category to look at it and have really run through the whole book and I do hope to see more research on time in the future there have recently been several papers on it and a couple of books and I hope that yeah, it, it receives much more attention well uh, Ulrike,
0: we've, we've taken up a lot of your time so just one final question um, this, this book has been out for a little while now so what, what are you working on now?
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you for asking. Um, I am currently working, as so many of us, on many projects, but uh, there are three main projects that I'm working on at the moment. First of all, I am finishing another book on um, refugees as humanitarian actors. This is only the working title, um, and I we, we will... This is definitely going to change, but at the core is a project that I led and carried out together with Hannah Schmidt uh, and also Joshua Gatto um, in Uganda, too, about refugee-led organizations and their role, what issues they face, how they are created. And we look at both uh, rather loose forms of organization, self-organization, as well as uh, highly formalized and institutionalized ones. and we hope to finish it in the next couple of months. So we're for, uh, far, quite far here. Um, then the second uh, area of research that uh, I'm exploring with uh, in, it, in my team too, together with um, Nadine Zaglou and um, Hannah Edler is the role of peace. There's so much research about conflict and. And displacement, not necessarily in connection, but um, some, in some ways also in connection. But the role of peace is so disregarded and has received so little attention. And um, this project is, uh, focuses on how, w- with the case study of Kakuma in Kenya, how people understand peace beyond the Eurocentric approach and uh, also how they contribute to peace in Kakuma as well as transnationally and the third project is something that i've published um, in a couple of papers recently is post-colonial approaches to understanding forced migration studies as well as refugee law and protection Um, we have a very Western approach, despite Chimney's paper of geopolitics and refugee uh, uh, protection, which was published more than twenty years ago, there is still a very Western approach to how research is carried out, and um, and I am fortunate to work with wonderful colleagues here to better understand uh, what role colonialism plays here, and also what role disregarding it plays. What how non-Western people have in the past and are still othered in a way of not receiving the same protection as white people, which we just now, a couple of years, or for, for the past year, we've seen uh, with you, how Ukrainian people are treated in Europe, uh, as opposed to people fleeing Afghanistan, Syria, or uh, let alone people from African countries, which is um, deserves much more attention.
0: Those all sounds, sound like fantastic projects. I've appreciated some of your uh, previous work on, um, the, uh, the, on the role of the colonial origins of, of, uh, of the refugee regime. Um, and your new book sounds uh, fantastic. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it on the podcast. Um, I would love to, thank you. Wonderful, well, I, I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very, very much for having me again, and I hope you have a nice evening. The book is Ulrike Krause's Difficult Life in a Refugee Camp, Gender, Violence, and Coping in Uganda, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.